In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Hosea chapter 14, the final chapter of the book. Now comes a final plea from God to the wayward nation of Israel, urging them to turn back to Him and receive His forgiveness and healing. God promises to restore the relationship between Himself and His people, declaring that He will love them freely and heal their backsliding. The chapter culminates with a powerful reminder to trust in God alone and abandon the false worship of idols. Good morning and blessed Lenten tide. Today is Friday, March 14th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Explore their many offerings of foreign language materials rooted in the Lutheran tradition on their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, join me in welcoming my guest this morning to help me wrap up the book of Hosea. It's the Reverend Stephen Tice, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Welcome back to the program, Pastor Tice. Thank you, sir. How are you this fine day? Oh, I am doing, well, just wonderful, better than I deserve, as they say. Uh, you know, things yep. have things have been kind of, uh, you know, slowing down a little bit for me, but they're going to get busy for both of us real soon. We only have a week left until Holy Week, which is my favorite time on the liturgical calendar. But uh, how has your Lenten tide been, and are you ready for Easter? Yeah, I, I've, I'm doing well. Our, our Lenten season has gone I'll call it smoothly. I don't know if that's the right term, but uh, we've certainly not had any major disruptions. But, uh, you know, the, the the focus on the Word of God and the promise of God is a time when suffering is still among us. And, you know, we look at our world today, we see lots of suffering in different places, but all of it has the characteristic of temporary. And what Christ did for us provides us the assurance that what we're going through now is real, but it does not last, and, and that's so helpful. It is helpful, and that and that whole message of, of Lent is to return to the Lord, and it's something that is, well, going to be evident in our passage today, because we are constantly in a state of needing to return to the Lord, to repent of our sins, and of course, to receive His mercy. Uh, brother, before we dig into the text today, of which, well, we don't have a whole lot to cover, but uh, there's probably still plenty to talk about, would you please start our time together in prayer? Certainly. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty and gracious God, you have given to us the assurance of your presence and care. You have called us out of darkness into your light, and yet we... We struggle in a world that is still afflicted with darkness. And far too often we see those around us being deceived or misled into turning from your truth, much as Hosea did in his day. Lord, strengthen us with the assurance that you have not forsaken us and that you are indeed our help, that you indeed save your people. Bless our study together today. And bless all those walking in this season of Lent, focusing on the promise of the resurrection and especially the promise of the return of our Savior at the end of the age. Until that time, 
We ask that you bless us together as your people, filled with your word of truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said before, we have a very short section this morning. It's only nine verses, but it's really Mm -hmm. a continuation of the thought which began in the previous chapter. Wouldn't you say, brother? Yes, it's it's that announcement that the Lord's going to be bringing his people back, and there's, there's a future and hope. Well, what information should our listeners know, perhaps if they haven't been tuned in the whole time, about Hosea and his ministry, or, or really, really any information that you think it might be important to know before we move on with this last and final plea from Hosea? Well, I think it's important to recognize that he is in that, that line of, of prophets at the end of the northern kingdom's uh, apostasy, and that they're soon going to be overrun by the enemy. And as, as the Lord sends him to that northern kingdom, it's important to see that God has not turned his back on the tribes of Israel that are not under the rule of David's heir. God is faithful even if his people turn from him. And so we, we hear this assurance that in the midst of our self-centeredness and our well, focus on short term, the Lord continues to focus on eternity and on upon for you and me anyway, uh, the assurance that tomorrow may be tough. Today is going to be rough at times, but the Lord has a rescue in place for all of us when the right time comes. And talk about times being tough. They really were for the people who were experiencing or going to soon experience the results of their own sins. And in the, in the last episode, at the end of chapter 13... There's some very, very uh, troubling images from God, uh, ones that we discussed and no need to rehash, but, but they're very visceral images of what it will look like when the Assyrians come in. Verse 16 says, mm-hmm. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed into pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. Just horribly visual language, and and yet it's important that the people know the true nature of the consequences for them not returning to the Lord. And the whole point is that God wants them to return so that, you know, if it be possible, they could avert this disaster. Yeah, and and this is what the the Lord has always called his people to, is repent. And and I think that throughout the way back in the beginning with Moses and the people of Israel in the wilderness— the Lord says, when you do these things, it was never if, it was always when. And, and as you think about the when, the Lord saw ahead of time what was going to come, and yet he remained faithful to them, and he calls them to repentance. The, the message of Hosea is, turn back to the Lord, he will restore you. You may not see it in your lifetime, but the Lord will restore. And the other side of that, I think for you and me as well, is to remember that we don't escape the consequences of evil in the world now, but God forgives and keeps his relationship with us in spite of what's happening in the world. That relationship with God of faith is the key to coping with each and every day that's coming. That's true. And and you said also something very important, and that is that the redemption may not be uh, felt or seen in their lifetime. We have such a narrow or short-sighted view of history 
when it comes to things like God's activity and even when it comes to the history of the church. And so here mm-hmm. we are in the 21st century in 2023, and we are standing up for the Lord and fighting battles that the Lord has promised that we'll be victorious over, that the church will be able to prevail against all these things. And yet, you know, when times get bad, we have to remember that we might not be around to see that victory, except, of course, the victory we have in Christ. But in terms of earthly victories, you know, the, the church uh, exists on a much longer time frame than we're accustomed to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's also the other, I think, important concept for us to reiterate. We've said it before, and, and people in the church have heard it for a long time. God is not bound by time. God is outside of time and interacting with you and me in time, but also in eternity. And as as Christians, we sometimes talk about having one foot in eternity, one foot in, in time, one, one foot in heaven, one foot in earth. Uh, but we can't grasp, grasp the concepts outside of time. We've never, without the Holy Spirit giving us any grasp of that at all, we wouldn't even be able to talk about it. But um, for us, this ongoing sense of time. And I think, now I'm going to do a little historical analysis real quickly. If you look at the history of North American civilizations, there were civilizations here prior to the Native American tribes. Uh, I live not too far from uh, the Cahokia Mounds uh, area, and in southern Illinois, parts of Missouri, there are these, these mounds exist. In fact, St. Louis was at one time referred to as Mound City. These ancient cultures, about which we know virtually nothing, built huge earth piles to get out of the floodplain, but also as part of their worship of getting back closer to God. Reminds me of the Tower of Babel. And as we look at human history, people have always tried to reach that which they cannot grasp. Um, and, And God comes down to us with his assurance of his presence. And so our, our awareness of time, if I look outside the, the trees that I see planted outside the building here, you know, those, those trees are 100, a couple of them are 100 years old. Most of them are probably about 75 years old. But as I look at them, I realize that there are trees around here that have been here for 400 years, and that's a short time. We don't see it that way. We think that's old. You know, but Noah preached for a hundred years while building the ark. And mm-hmm. when the Lord has given a message to his people, he says, keep repeating this. Don't base it on human perception. Be faithful to what I've called you to. And that's, again, what Hosea has been saying to the people of Israel throughout the book. The Lord has been faithful. You have been unfaithful. Turn from your denial of who God is, that he might fill you again with the blessing. And we'll be looking at that through today's uh, verses, certainly. One of the things that's been humbling to me as a pastor, I have served a couple different congregations, and two of them were on the older side, at least as it comes to Missouri Synod congregations. Uh, one was a few years older than the Synod itself, and this one I currently serve now is like 130-some years old, something like that. And so uh, you look, you go in, and you look at, say, the histories, and you see uh, confirmation class after confirmation class, pastor after pastor, uh, and and even some of the people who have outlived several pastors, you see that the work of the Lord is something that is done across time, and 
And whether you're the pastor or whether you're a parishioner, you just get a little part in it. And the Lord is the one who's at work. And so thank God it doesn't rely specifically on us. But the message is always the same, which is that we must both ourselves return to the Lord and call the world to return too, because disaster is coming no matter what for those who have not turned to the Lord, for those who have rejected God's call. Uh, and, And will it be temporal? Perhaps. But ultimately, it will be spiritual when Christ returns at the end to judge the living and the dead. And so there's this overarching message about returning that's something that's not just important for the people of Israel back then to uh, consider as the Assyrians are at their borders, but for something for all of us to consider today. Yeah, the the understanding, yep, I'm going to say the understanding of nations and how long they last, we are very short-sighted, and our culture focuses us on the immediacy of today and almost completely ignores 500 years ago. There's no way that we can meaningfully look at the life of God's people in his promises in the church before Pentecost for the Old Testament people and, and fully grasp how durative God's presence is because, A, we live a short time, and B, our culture does not place value on long-term things. Oh, amen to that. Well, let us let us get into our text, uh, chapter 14. I'm just going to read the first three verses. That's where the first break comes for the ESV editors, and so we'll just take that little bit. So here we go. Return, O Israel, to Yahweh your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to Yahweh. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. So we have here a call from Hosea, return to Yahweh your God. And then he, he gives them uh, some words of repentance. He, he kind of, the, the, the liturgy he offers includes uh, the confession. Uh, what do you what do you make of this? He, he's telling the people certainly, and keeping in mind the image of his marriage that's used in this particular book. He's saying the Lord has not abandoned the relationship, even though you personally, as individuals, may have turned from it. He has not. So you need to return. The Lord has not left you. You've stumbled. The Lord is saying, "Come, come to me." And I will deal with your sin. We won't be saved by our enemy. And, and this is, again, this Old Testament focus of the people of Israel. They're constantly looking for different alliances. It goes all the way back to Abraham when he and Sarah are in the presence of Abimelech. And, and Abimelech you know, says, uh, well, I think this woman's attractive. Perhaps, uh, perhaps I could have a relationship with her and and the result of when he finds out that it's actually Abraham's wife. Abraham wasn't trusting God. He came up with his own subtle plan to, to hide the fact. The Israelites have done the same thing, the ten northern tribes. And now Assyria shall not save us, military power. We won't say what we've created is, in fact, our God. In you, the orphan finds mercy. That's, that's a reference to the child called Not My Kid. You know, this this connects back to what God has said earlier to his servant. 
when Hosea has had children and he names them certain things. The, the reference is that God is the one who brings his people safely into a place of permanent security because the Old Testament uh, reference, of course, to Assyria and trusting in horses, you know, the military might. Uh, today we would we would talk about light infantry and and tanks and things like that. Back then it was horses and chariots, but the the whole focus is human beings trust obvious power sources, and God says, "Do not rely on physical power; it does not have spiritual duration." And so here, what what Hosea is calling them to is turn to the Lord, take with you words, and you said he gives them the the confession to use. The Lord isn't looking for sacrifices. He's not looking for offerings of some kind as if we can cover our own guilt. What he's looking for is you and me coming to him and saying, take away all iniquity. We will pay. And we will pay the vows, but you are the one who has to take it away first, and then in response, we serve God rather than we serve the things we've made with our own hands. So, and I, I think about occasionally we encounter this challenge. Not too often. Lutherans aren't particularly focused on um, what I would call making good on guilt. Uh, some, some Christian groups focus on how you uh, make good for what you've done wrong or perhaps prove that you're sorry. And there's nothing wrong with that. The, the the certain and clear word here is words. It's, it's the words, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. It starts with who we are and what we say about God and our relationship with him. And that's shown very clearly in, in verse 3, where the answer is, our God is not what we've made. So many psalms give us this same image, but Psalm 69, verse 30, it says, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please Yahweh more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoof. So we have this idea that, you know, we'll pay with bulls the vows of our lips. As you're pointing out, it's so important that the confession and what you say uh, and your heart, I suppose, matches that which you do. So you could be the most faithful uh, in attendance at worship. You could be the most faithful in terms of however you think worship should be perfectly done. And yet, if you have not genuinely repented, if, you, if your heart is not with the Lord, uh, then then there's sort of a disconnect there. And so, well, not sort of, there is a disconnect there. So this yeah. is what mm-hmm. he's saying, take with you words and return to the Lord. Plus, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, these people are, have been incredibly religious. You know, there are multiple places for worship. The problem is they're worshiping the wrong gods or they're worshiping the right God, but in the wrong ways. And so it's like, listen, I, I gave you those things to point forward to a greater sacrifice, which is to come. You guys don't know about that really yet. Mm-hmm. But the point is you have to, uh, yeah, you have to turn to me. And he, of course, gives them that faith. He gives them every reason to turn to him. It's really their resistance. And so he says, and, and Assyria shall not save us. You pointed out naturally that they've been looking for alliances outside of God. But I just think this is very clever the way I say it. And we will say no more, quote, our God to the work of our hands. So, you know, I want to talk about that just a little bit more. 
you know, we know back then that they were creating literal idols, which would either be the gods that they could not see or the thrones of God or gods. In this day and age, you know, you ask average people if there's idol worship and, and a lot of them, unless they've been catechized in the Lutheran church, will say, well, no, no, not really. We don't see that much anymore. Maybe, maybe in the, in the East or something. And, but. Mm-hmm. Talk about the reality of the idols that we serve, the idols, the works of our hands that we look to and, and say, our God, today. Well, you know, one, one of them, I think it's pretty obvious when, when we spend time thinking about it, is the whole science and, and technology dimension of our culture. We think that science has all the answers, and, and uh, for many people... Science has become a religious uh, position, and which is inherently non-scientific, but that's a different topic. Um, right. and, and what you're looking at is this belief that we now have found the thing that has all the answers. That to which we look for the ultimate good, and that which we go to for our answers is our God. And Luther describes it that way. And, and so in many people's lives, science and investigation and technology tied to scientific developments or um, improvements of servicing technology, computers. You know, we're hearing all these things now about people coming up with uh, a new a new program that can write all kinds of things, and people are worried about plagiarism and people submitting uh, documents as if, you know, some, some guy used a computer programming to write children's books. Um, you know, these, these kinds of things are there, and that is, in fact, a form of idol. And what we discovered, with, particularly with the COVID um, infection from the, the novel virus that came out of animals one way or another, is that science doesn't have the answers. Science can, can ask the questions, but the answers aren't always there. And other people made a science, uh, I'm sorry, a god out of education. They think, well, as long as we educate people properly, those problems will go away. We can fix the brokenness by educational steps. Now, some things can be fixed by educational processes. There's no doubt about that. But the ultimate problem is the brokenness of the human heart. And anything we try to find that can assuage our guilt or deal with our discomfort or make us feel better about ourselves, whatever the terms are we need to use there, improve our self-image, um, any of those things, and literally some people go to cosmetic surgery to improve their image in their own mind. I don't know that it does anything else. But in that process, we're always saying, we found the answer to the question of why am I not satisfied? And the solution is something we've developed, which will bring me complete satisfaction. And the reality is it does not. You mentioned things like science. Go ahead. You mentioned things like science and education and these things, I guess it should be clear, are very good. In fact, we, we, we appreciate science and education as a means by which to understand God's world and be able to you know, study the word of God. Those things are ministerial or they serve uh, God's magisterial uh, word. But we've come a long way since uh, theology was the queen of the sciences. You know, it's it's been divided sure. mm-hmm. into two different um, two different camps, which is very unfortunate, as you said, also very unscientific. The very last yeah. line of verse three says, "In you, the orphan finds mercy." Now that seems like a uh, a little bit of a non sequitur because it says, you know, they're quoting still 
we will say no more our God to the works of our hands. And then just kind of out of left field, in you, the orphan finds mercy. Why are we bringing up orphans right here? Because even what comes next doesn't really connect to it. Um, is this because they'll soon be orphans themselves or, or something different? I, I, well, part of it is that, but it's also that throughout Scripture, God continually says he is the God of the widow and the fatherless. He continues to claim he is the God of the orphan. And if you go back to the, the um, Aramaic language, the Semitic language for the gods that they worship, they often use a, a label or title that can be called Baal or Baal, which, which is the same as my master, my lord, my husband. But it's, it's almost looking toward that false god as the one who now fills the role of the father figure in the life of the worshiper. And the orphan won't find mercy from, from Baal. The orphan won't find mercy from Assyria. The orphan will find mercy from Yahweh, who is the one who saves, who is our helper. But this understanding that when you're lost and powerless because you don't have a protector father and again culturally we we've moved so far away from that that people tend to overlook the significance of being in a family having a, a protector a father a head of household who cares for and provides for protection for livelihood for sustenance being an orphan in our culture not nearly as impactfully harmful as it was in that time and so god is the one who says the orphan who has no defender, the orphan who has no champion, the orphan, the orphan who has no hero to fight for them, I will not squash that individual, that one who is separated from their father. I will have mercy on them and, in fact, bring them back. And New Testament used the word adoption here. Take them into my family, into my household. And this is uh, contrasting the other power sources of the day, the way the orphans were mistreated then and could be too in our society if we're not careful. So I think it's fascinating that this phrase comes up in the context of the words that Hosea has given them to use essentially to repent. So this is the people in their position of repentance saying and confessing, in you the orphan finds mercy. Combining that with what you've just said, it brings to my mind this idea that when whenever you're whenever you are told um, that you have to quit relying on something that you've relied on for a long time there's a lot of fear and anxiety there so mm -hmm. we have this they're being told you cannot worship these false gods you cannot worship um them in the same way that you worship the one true god and they've been relying on their their worship of these false gods for a long 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 time so i also get the idea that there's this sense of of being fatherless once they give up their false idols and so in here, it's a confession that they will find mercy. The, the God is the protector of even the fatherless, the, the one who doesn't have the, the protection they think they had or, or should have. Yeah, uh, I think part of what you're getting to is that our culture has been so separated from this concept that you have to have a God over you or you're in big trouble. Um, you know, the, the cultural context of Hosea's time Frequently, the, the god they worshipped was associated with the physical location they were in as well. The god of the mountain, the god of the, the valley, the god of the ocean, whatever it might be. 
And, and Yahweh has always said, I am the God of all creation. And it gets back to what they're doing with the gods of their own hands. They're substituting the creature for the creator, as New Testament puts it. And now the Lord says, fear not, the creator is still your giver of life, and I am with you, and I will show mercy, even though you feel fatherless, as you point out. Well, that's a good thought for us to consider as we take our break. Folks, when we come back, Pastor Tice and I will continue wrapping up Hosea chapter 14 with verse 4. See you on the other side. you thank you thank you for your service our church loves and is grateful for those that serve our country operation barnabas part of ministry to the armed forces equips you to reach out to veterans in your community to bring christ to those that served call ministry to the armed forces at 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org thank you for your service thank you god bless our military You are an essential part of KFUO's efforts to proclaim the gospel, and we want to hear from you. Please share with us your feedback, suggestions, and questions. Email us at kfuo at kfuo.org or mail a letter to KFUO Radio at 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also call in your comment or question at 314-996-1518. Be sure to follow us on social media so you can like, comment, and share your favorite posts. GMT might stand for Greenwich Mean Time, the international standard that enabled sailing ships to navigate and trains to run on schedule. This week on the Lutheran Hour, you'll hear about another kind of GMT, God's Messianic Time, the eternal standard by which God operates and why He's always on time. Hear guest speaker Dr. John Nunes this week on the Lutheran Hour. Sundays at 12.30 and 5 p.m. on KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Stephen Tice, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Folks, thank you for joining us today as we finish up our study of Hosea. If you have any feedback about the show, you can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook to ask questions or just say hello. Be sure to encourage your friends also to listen to Thy Strong Word on the radio if they're in the St. Louis area or live or on demand at kfuo.org, or even through the KFUO app or as a podcast. There are so many ways for them to stay up to date and even you catch up on episodes that maybe you've missed. Ultimately, I just want to say thank you so much for being with us today and every day as we strive to grow together in God's Word. Well, Pastor Tice, before the break, we were just finishing up with the first three verses. I'm ready to move on if you are. Uh, anything else you want to say before we read verses 4 through 7? Well, I think, again, just going back to what I mentioned earlier about the the names of the children that God told Hosea to use as a teaching tool for the people of Israel, and he changed those names. 
it's the the pitied or beloved one and my people having not been my people so the the nature of orphanhood is prefigured as corrected by God in the names that the Hosea is instructed to give his children and and the Lord puts a new name on us in our baptism and he calls us his children and he makes us part of his family and of course this is new testament amplification of old testament truth but uh we like to remind people that scripture is consistent and so we interpret scripture with scripture and we're able to find these connections to god's long-term plan of salvation in the activities of the prophet's lives excellent uh, insight there let's go ahead and read verses four five six and seven i will heal their apostasy i will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Wow, so that's a big turn, right? You know, we've had so yeah. much through Hosea of this, um, I guess for lack of a better, better word, just law-based proclamation of turning and returning, and, and now mm -hmm. this beautiful image of, of them being returned by God and being healed by God. Take us through each part of this. The Lord is the one that does the healing. They can't do it themselves. And as we look back at, at Hosea's wife, Gomer, she was in dire straits when he went and brought her back again and he took him to herself and set her apart for a time that she might be made whole and purified just as he would send the israelites into the babylonian captivity doing the same thing with them then as he takes her back he loves his people freely and and i see the the phrase i will be like the dew to israel and we tend to overlook how Clearly, the scripture talks about God refreshing his people with the dews that's on the grass, like dew on the mount uh, on Mount Hermon. You know, these, these phrases in scripture that, that are always how God is using water to bring life, using his refreshing resources to, to pick us up. And the God of the storm that they might have been worshiping was a thunder God, a lightning God. And, you know, we've had some pretty heavy rains over our past couple of days here where I live, and this morning I looked at a couple of creeks were really full to the banks, almost over the, the top of the bridge in one case. And, and that's destructive. That's not healing or restorative. That washes things away. But dew settles, and it soaks in, and it's refreshing. And this is what God is doing. Israel now is going to have a responsive growth from God's blessing. Take root. And the trees of Lebanon, of course, uh, we think of, of trees in one way uh, as being a symbol of, of height and power, but this was also a symbol of strength and duration and building resources, a, a useful resource, not any longer an impediment to what God is doing, but now something he can make use of. And uh, this is the understanding that we see with olives. The The olive was a a uh, beautiful thing to look at in blossom, but also then the, the beauty of the blossom led to fruit that endures, if I can use a New Testament reference. So what God's, what God's doing is he's taking this image of blessing, and that blessing will be a, a 
place where all God's people are lifted up. And when they're lifted up, God will make all things new. And and this is the image of, of the returning and dwelling beneath my shadow, God giving protection, the, the warm branches of, of a spreading tree that enables all the good to come. And now we're back to the land flowing with milk and honey, flourish like grain, blossom like vine, like wine of Lebanon. Their fame is going to be spread abroad. Well, that's that's a future of blessing that the people of, of Israel in, in the ten northern tribes aren't going to see in their lifetime, as we talked about earlier. It's not going to happen while they're alive. But it will come. God will do it in his appointed time. He, as you pointed out already, he will heal their apostasy. And I think that's something that we sometimes forget. When we encounter people who are out in the world who are apostates, that is, people who are faithless, people who have uh, turned away from God, and we then proclaim to them you know, the truth of God, which we should, but I think sometimes we have the attitude that, that they just need to quit it and come back. And there is a part of that. But I think we ignore the reality that even in cases of apostasy, even in our world today, the Holy Spirit works when and where he pleases. He is the one who will heal the apostasy of the nations and those surrounding us. Yeah. And there's one of the things we do in our, our prayer of the church on a recurring basis. We pray for God to give guidance and leadership to not just the church, but the nations of the world and leaders, because he is the one who has to turn their hearts, and you and I can't do it. But the Lord desires all people to be saved. We're, we're clear in Scripture, it's repeatedly stated that he wants the nations to come to him. And this is one of the things that we see pointed out here, in, in that God is causing Israel to blossom like the lily. And is this fragrance like Lebanon, this wine, what are we told about the wine? Fame. Yeah. Fame. The people of Israel are going to be known like the wines of Lebanon are known. This is about what God will do in the future to cause them to be remembered and recognized with a positive context, as opposed to the negative context of being overrun by the Assyrians and destroyed. There's something bright and beautiful down the road. And, you know, this is one of the things that uh, this past week, uh, not this week, but last week I had two funerals. And, uh, you know, those two funerals, looking at, at the person who died and, and their belief in Jesus and the promise of a resurrection reunion when our Lord comes at the end of the age. And and the, the true fame that's coming is not how well a person is known now. It's that when Christ comes at the end of the age, all those who rise in Christ will see and know one another. And that's the thing that then we'll sit with him, as Scripture says, and share his rule with him. And every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord, but they'll also be confessing that we are in his presence, and therefore we have, I'll call it the basking in the glow of his radiance, the fame that's, that's Christ has shared with us by his mercy and grace. You speak of, of course, the wine of Lebanon and the beauty of the blossom of the lily. Uh, you know, and, and of course, we see here the trees of Lebanon. Isaiah talks about the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. Uh, in the Psalms, it talks about, you know, cedars of Lebanon. We get this image all the time. And you illustrated the point about the olive. His beauty shall be like the olive. One thing that I think is interesting about olive trees 
is that they also tend to last a very long time. Top of the show, you mentioned the trees around you, and some of them are very old. Um, not mm-hmm. old in terms of the, the the length of the world, but certainly old in terms of the way we think about the shortness of our lives. Well, oh, yeah. you know, there are olive trees that are thousands of years old. So his beauty shall be like the olive, in my imagination, really gives some some credence to the idea that there is going to be this longer-lasting faithfulness. Psalm 52 says, But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. So in addition to beauty, I would say that they're also evoking the image of these olive trees, which during their time, they probably could say, this olive tree's been here because I've heard about this particular one from my grandfather's 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 grandfather, just as we could, um, if I'm not mistaken, there are olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane today that would have been very young, but still there during the time of Jesus. So olive trees are also known to be very long-lasting. Yeah, they, they have this long-term survival. They also, from what I've been told at any rate, don't begin to bear fruit until they're about 40 years old, at least some varieties. So it takes them a long time to reach maturity, but then it's a con- constant or continual, I should say, giving of gifts to the people around them. This is Jesus mentions that his disciples will be connected to him. He's the real rootstock, the root of the stump of Jesse is the way it's described in Isaiah. But this understanding that he is the, the branches, we, he's the vine, he's the rootstock, we're attached to him. The people of Israel, the ten northern tribes, some of those people are around when Jesus comes to Nazareth in Galilee. The descendants of those ten northern tribes, some of them are still there. And, you know, we, we hear about um, in the temple, Hannah. She was, she was from the tribe of Asher. That's one of the ten tribes. So it shows up in Jesus' birth and appearance at the temple that the fame of one of these ten tribes members, the one who holds Jesus as, as a, you know, uh, as Simeon is holding her, he's, he's, she's singing to those who are looking for the redemption of Israel. Here he is. So we, we see that God remains faithful and shows up in Luke's account where he tells us, this, was, this woman was from one of the ten northern tribes. She's out of that group that Hosea said, return to the Lord with, with repentance, and he will cause you to be known. Your fame is great. So it's, it's just one of those incidental references in the New Testament. We're actually told one of these descendants from the ten northern tribes is at the temple when Jesus appears, so that God is faithful to his promise that their fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. In verse 7, where it says, they shall return and dwell beneath my shadow, uh, you know, this is akin to Psalm 91, right? The, you know, he who dwells yeah. in the shelter of the Most High. So Luther takes this to mean the church itself. The church is who are dwelling beneath the shadow of the Lord. They're the ones who are flourishing like the grain. They're the ones blossoming like the vine and having the fame that spreads all over. So we talked earlier about this being a promise to Israel, but that Israel, is that, as Luther says, the, the true Israel that's been restored through the church, or, or is this the, the, uh, the kingdoms of Israel here, or a little of both? How do you see that, and how does that apply to what Luther says? 
I, I, I see it as being the true church and Israel as a group of people up until the time that Jesus appears. The fact that Joseph is able to trace his ancestry to Judah. God remains faithful to the nation until such time as the heir of David appears on the scene. And now the allegiance switches from the national identity to the one who is the true anointed of the Lord. And the the Lord's, I'm going to say, definitive statement on that is the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., because the temple itself is no longer needed, and the nation of Israel as a political entity disappears when the temple is destroyed. It's no I think it's a helpful a, distinction. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, you know what? We have two verses left. So let me go ahead and read those two verses to get them in the conversation. Verses 89. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? Is it I who answer and look after you? I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of Yahweh are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Uh, taking us back to verse 8, I actually misread it with a little, little bit wrong inflection, which gave it a, the wrong meaning. Uh, it actually says, yeah. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. So sort of the last couple of verses here are yet again reminding them of the, the, the cautionary, uh, uh, I guess, warning, a cautionary warning of following after idols. Yeah, and this is, this is again, the, Isaiah's reference to, uh, you know, the, the irony, if you will, of, of making your idol out of a tree. You went out in the woods and cut down and carved an idol, and then you took the rest of the tree home and cooked supper with it. Um, it's my usual response to that when I share that in, in Bible class settings or even when it's one of the readings in, in the worship service is it's basically Isaiah's question of how smart are you really um, to worship that thing you made with your own hands when you burn the rest of that thing in the fire to cook supper. If you reflect what you've done, you see idols are temporary. They're, they're human forms and at best they're a human representation of what the human thinks God should be like, which is far worse than, than what God really is like. No matter what you and I, we, I've used this phrase before, and I'm sure you've heard it, as human beings, uh, we, we want to make God over in our image, and an idol allows you to do that. And other people do it with the non-physical idols we were talking about before, well, I can never believe in a God who, and then they fill in the blank with whatever they think God should be like, which is another way of saying, unless God is the way I say God should be, he can't be God, which is really saying, I'm God, and God better like it. And, and this is what the Lord says. It is I who answer your prayers and your requests and respond to your petitions, and I look after you. Not idols. The idols can't care for you. They never have. It's like going all the way back to the first idol the people of Israel made when Moses was on the mountain and the people said, oh, God killed him. What are we going to do now? And Aaron says, well, give me your earrings. And they build this, this representation, you say, a uh, throne for the God they worship. That's the thing with the golden calf or bullock, actually. It was never the idea that you were worshiping the animal, but that it represents the power of the God who would ride on a bull and the bull would be subservient to that God. And, and so what happens is God, God says, 
through Moses, take the idol you worship, grind it up into powder, mix it with water, and make everyone drink it. Now, this is the real issue. When you look at this activity of God's instruction about that idol that Aaron made, when you drink gold suspended in in water, it's a diuretic. It's a laxative. And there's a, there's a Hebrew word, galuli, which is tri- tied directly to how God looks at the idols and the things the Israelites had done in the wilderness. And that, that term, galuli, refers literally to the droppings of animals. And so, and so what happened was the, the golden calf they worshipped ended up being the droppings in the desert. And, and so this is what God says. I answer, I look after you, and going all the way back now to, to Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers in Deuteronomy, the Lord is the one that gave them the manna, whatever it was, and it lasted until they entered the land of promise and celebrated the Passover in Canaan after crossing the Jordan River, and then the manna disappears. It is I who answer and look after you. I did it in the wilderness. I did it by giving you a land flowing with milk and honey. It's not about the idols. Your attempt to get those idols to give you things is misreading how God gifts things. So he answers our calls. And, and he doesn't always give us what we want right away. And sometimes he says, no, I have a better plan. But he always answers. I think we have this problem as Christians of thinking if God doesn't give us the thing we had asked for, he's not answered the prayer. He has, but he hasn't necessarily said yes. And, and this is what he's telling the, the people of Israel here is, I am the one who answers you. And more than that, I look after you. The evergreen cypress, um, you know, we have uh, cypress growing in the yard of one of our son's uh, homes. And, and that cypress tree, you know, looks great in the spring. And then it's not an evergreen cypress. It loses all of its leaves in the fall. It's like dead. And, you're, you know, you're looking at it and saying, this tree die? No, it just is going through the, the, this process of losing. But the evergreen cypress always is green and always is ready to support life. And so this is what God says. I'm always making things green. I'm always giving you new life. It's back to the Garden of Eden. And then the heavenly Jerusalem where the the tree of life is present again and it gives its fruit and bears its fruit in 12 seasons and its leaves are for the healing of the nation. And this image shows up here as God compares himself to a tree. And what comes to my mind then is the tree of life in both the Garden of Eden and the New Jerusalem. One of the other things, too, in addition to what you've already illustrated, is that in verse 8 when he says, O Ephraim, what have I do to I- with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I think you could also draw from that that when they gave credit to the false idols of the past for the blessings that they received, it of course was not the inanimate works of their hands, but God himself. So you could also say it was I who were, was answering you, or I had answered you, and I was looking after you, uh, recalling to our mind that people today, they will look at their idols, and they will, they will illustrate, they'll say, look, 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 look at all the success X, Y, and Z gave me. You know, yeah. I, I, mm-hmm. gave up, I gave up uh, uh, religion to chase after uh, money and wealth, and look how wealthy and, and rich I am. And you could say, well, even those things which you think came from your idol of your job or your idol of yourself or your idol of whatever, 
those were actually mm-hmm. from God. And so that's important to remember, too, because people love evidence, but it doesn't mean the evidence is coming from uh, – or the evidence is correct in where the, the blessings are coming from. Yeah, this this is the, the typical logical fallacy of, of assuming um, sequence uh, is the famous cause and effect. And when you, when you think about it happened when I did this, therefore it must be the cause, well, that's an assumption in most cases, unless you've actually proven this is how it happened. But even so, God is the one who gave you and me the gifts of intelligence, uh, talents, and things we're able to do come from his creating power placed in us. And as you pointed out, it's always the, the Lord who provides for us. Uh, and we acknowledge that and give him praise and honor. But he doesn't hold back his blessings. He sends his reign upon the just and the unjust. And, and uh, I usually use the reference to rain and, and farming when, when we talk about how God treats the whole world. Because when it rains, it doesn't just rain on the farms of the Christians and then stop raining and move to the next Christian farm and rain some more. It rains at everybody's farm. And, and this uh, understanding, as you point out, that even when they were misidentifying the source, God was faithful and kept on giving them his blessing. And he does that for us, too. Of course. And here we are. The ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. And if that doesn't sum up the the situation that's going on even in our lives today, nothing else does, that the ways of the Lord are a stumbling block to those who, well, basically don't want to submit to God's authority, uh, but for those who want to be righteous, for those who want to exercise their faith and good works toward their neighbor, then we look to the ways of the Lord to know how to act. Um, what a what an interesting way for him, in a very very proverbial kind of way for him to end this whole book. Yeah, and this is getting back to the the whole issue of of Hosea's instruction to take a wife, and and the way that relationship is portrayed. Hosea remains faithful to his wife, to his children, to that commitment made, even though the stumbling of his wife is illustrated for us. That doesn't change his commitment as a husband, and the Lord himself talks about his relationship with us. And Christ and his bride, the church, uh, Ephesians 5, Paul's instruction to love our wives as husbands in the way that Christ loved the church. And and we we can't. We fail miserably because we're sinners. But that doesn't change the fact that God loves us and that God remains faithful. And he'll keep doing what's his nature, as as you point out. And even when other people don't get it and they stumble over it, the Lord keeps being himself. Well, amen to that, brother. Folks, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Stephen Tice, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Pastor, thanks once again for being on the show. Thank you. It's been my pleasure to be with you, and God bless you and your congregation as you walk to Easter and celebrate the the return of the color white to the— That's right. <laughs> Although I have to say, uh, violet's my one of my favorite colors. So, if, but but white and gold are beautiful too, especially since they acknowledge Christ's uh, resurrection. So yeah, I look forward to that. And folks, I pray that you too have a blessed weekend as we head into the final week of Lent before Holy Week. When we come back on Monday, we're breaking the seal on a brand new book, the Book of Judges. Judges tells the story of Israel's. Well, descent into chaos and idolatry and the subsequent rise of a series of judges or redeemers, deliverers who deliver them from their enemies. 
Of course, God is the one lifting up these deliverers. And, well, what makes this book particularly fascinating is the fact that the judges are flawed, flawed heroes, but flawed. And they, of course, are the instruments of God. You'll hear about some familiar judges like Deborah and Gideon and Samson, but some unfamiliar ones, too. There are 12 in all. The book ends with the Israelites, well, frankly, still in a state of moral and spiritual decay, but it offers hope for a better future. So I hope that you'll join us for this brand new book beginning this Monday on our regular time at 11 o'clock. So until we come back together after the weekend, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.